Hello and welcome to Pieces of History, I'm Colin McGrath. This week I'll be looking at objects and material culture with Emma McAllister, a PhD candidate at Queen's University in Belfast. Hi Emma, how are you? Hello, I'm good, thanks Colin, how are you? Not too bad, I'm grand. Um, so before we kind of get into the the deep research that you've done so far, um, can you tell me just a bit about your background so far? Yeah, so I have a degree in history from Queen's and then I went on um, and did an MA in cultural heritage and museum studies in University of Ulster. So that's kind of where this more material culture object research has come from. Um, And now I'm doing a PhD and I look at religious collections in museums um, and but sort of from a historical perspective, but I use more anthropological methods as well. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm at at the moment. Very good. And so, so what kind of kind of made you go into that direction then really? Was it like something you did in your undergrad or something you did in your master's or what, what was the driving uh, for? So, uh, my dissertation in my master's is basically an extension of my dissertation um, from my master's degree. Um, I looked at religious objects and the perception that people have of them in um, a Catholic church um, in a museum in Amsterdam called Our Lord in the Attic Museum and in the Spaniard in Belfast if you've ever been there so upstairs they have lots of different um, I guess Catholic objects Um, and I looked at how people reacted and interacted and treated the objects in the distinct spaces um, and I'm kind of taking that on to my uh, PhD thesis. So I look at several different um, churches. Um, I look at purpose-built museums. Um, and then I look at historic house museums to see the difference between those kind of spaces and how um, visitors interact with those spaces. Um, and I also have a more sort of in-depth study of a particular object um, called the Shrine of St. Patrick's Hand, which is displayed mostly in the Ulster Museum, but it's taken once a year to St. Patrick's Church in Donegal Street in Belfast and venerated for St. Patrick's Day. So it's one object that does many different things, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the thesis summed up. Very good. Um, so, so that's that's what really what I was going to touch on next. So, um, so you're saying so that's currently residing in the Science and Scholars Gallery in the Ulster Museum at the moment, then. Yeah. Um, so, in the Ulster Museum, it's in the context of Irish history, um, bringing Christianity to Ireland, um, and it's kind of a strange object so it's displayed among more ubiquitous Christian objects like crosses Um, and I did some visitor interviews there um, last year and most people didn't really know what it was Um, or if they they kind of had an inkling to what it was thought you know why isn't this in Armagh Cathedral or somewhere more religious Um, and other people kind of took offense to it thought well um, shows you idolatry of the past um, not really knowing that it's still an active object within Catholic worship um, because it is taken away on St Patrick's Day um, and whenever it's in the church uh, the priest 
puts a relic of St. Patrick into its relic chamber. So they're separated most of the year and then it's used within the mass there. And then afterwards, parishioners can come over and say prayers or most people take photographs. Um, they usually bless themselves before they do that. Um, so it's a very different object. And it's obviously it's not behind glass. Um, it appears very differently. So, um, And the way that the priests talk about it compared to what you see in the museum, the caption describing it, it's, it's just an entirely different object. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so what I'll do is um, I'll put up a photo of the actual object on Twitter so people can mm-hmm. see what it looks like. So I'm looking at it at the minute, and it's essentially would you say it's like a like a go- golden kind of silvery figure of a, a an arm with a sleeve and a hand with three a thumb and two fingers pointing up with it looks like a jewel on the middle finger. Then, yeah, so it's um, it's in the shape of a bif- bishop's hand, so. Um, they think that it was made between the 14th and 15th century. So that's um, the archaeological perspective, let's say. Um, and it was made in Ireland. Um, and it's kind of important to remember that because there's not met much of these kind of objects that exist now in Ireland that were made in Ireland. Um, and the jewels indicate that it's a bishop's hand and it's making a gesture of benediction. And you've... You probably see these um, gestures in different religious pictures, for instance, like the Sacred Heart, uh, Jesus making that hand gesture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's very common within the Catholic faith to have that. Um, and in the past, those kinds of objects, um, they were called speaking reliquaries. And the priests would use them as like a liturgical extension of themselves. They would use it to point at things. Um, and also that uh, there's a little hole in the thumb of that object, which you can't really see unless you, you know, if you know what I mean, whenever you're in the, in the museum. Um, so they would have put holy water in it and mm-hmm. sprinkled it on people for healing qualities. Um, so mostly these objects were used... To, to get to gain their healing qualities or sort of to do with luck as well. People would pray to them. And it's very important that they were also very much used for touch. So people would have touched them. Um, and today, because it's a highly regarded historical object, the touch of this object has been um, restricted. Um, to only the museum staff and the priests. So it's not really taken its full spiritual advantage within the church at the moment because it's it's deemed too historically valuable to touch. Um, so it's made from a silver guild. So that would be silver with gold. Um, and yeah, it's a very, very precious object. Obviously, um, valuable both historically and um, monetar- monetarily and religiously, but I don't really think you get the impression about how much it's revered within the museum as you do within the church. Um, a lot of people just walk past it and don't notice it, even though it's kind of prominent and it kind of sticks out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to be displayed within a 360-degree um, showcase so you can see all the way around it but the amount of people that take time to inspect it 
it's not that many. So if you compare the way um, people look at it within the church and people look at it within the museum, it's very different. Um, it used to be displayed whenever they started the loan agreement with the Ulster Museum in 1986. Um, it used to be displayed as sort of the number one object in the entry of the museum. Um, and now it's kind of been demoted a bit. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so um, I think at the time, the curator of archaeology at that time, his main interest was um, these kind of medieval reliquaries. Um, so it, it, a lot of the time display in museums can depend on what the curator likes personally, which is fair enough. Um, so at the, that time in the 80s, it was like one of the number one objects. Um, and now, I don't know, I think maybe the mummy would be. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say, I would say probably, yeah, I think you're just right, actually, because whenever you go into um, the Ulster Museum now as well, they have, because obviously it's been, you know, um, refurbished over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, yeah. the, the, main, the, the main objects that I find whenever I go into are there's like a large Irish greyhound they have oh which yeah, is yeah 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 fr- fr- front and center mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they've got um, like a bit of artwork is it like dragons hanging off the ceiling yeah yeah and then when, whenever you walk through you've got the um, the troubles um, um, exhibit and then you kind of go into like Ulster history and background and things like that. and it is very interesting but like you said, it's kind of taken a backseat almost in, compar- in comparison yeah. to all of those things, you know. And obviously the museum are trying to drive through visitors and they're trying to get things that are kind of showy as well. So maybe those things which were once venerated, you know, are no longer seen really, essentially. Yeah, I don't know whether, you know, it's clearly a Catholic object. It's not another kind of Christian object. Um. Although people maybe don't know what it is, so that maybe goes in its favour sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose you've got a museum in Belfast and all the different connotations with that. So maybe they don't want to put it as front and centre, but it is a really interesting object historically. Yeah. Um, and the way it functioned in the past, um, they used to use it as well. Um, you would swear oaths on it in like courts of law, mm-hmm. you know, Um and obviously within the Catholic faith, it's it's a big deal, I guess. Um, and it survived from that period. Now, the Catholic Church say that it was made in 1186 when they found the bones of St. Patrick, um, St. Bridget and St. Colm Kill and St. Patrick. Um, and then in 13-something, in the 12th century, it was carried off by Edward de Bruce after the... The church, uh, the cathedral in Downpatrick um, burnt down. So within the church, there's this amazing mythology or hagiography about it. Um, and I think that's equally as important as knowing the history of it, as in the archaeologists say it's from the 14th and the 15th century. But I think it's good to know both sides of the mm-hmm. story because it mm-hmm. elevates the object, knowing different stories attached to it. Of course, um, yeah. So there's all these different things. Um, and in the past, so it used to be owned domestically. So people, I think in the Downpatrick area, held on to it. And it's amazing that it survived. And it's the only medieval reliquary still used in ritual today. 
So the ones that you would get um, used today for ritual or relic veneration or pastiches, they look old, but they were maybe made, I think you can buy ones now, like, um, you know, so you can interact with them, you can touch them and you can kiss them. But uh, this is a very special object in terms of its history and its life. Um, I think the paper I sent you, um, I was focusing on touch of the object. Um, and since its career in the museum, as I said before, touch has been restricted. But whenever it was in the church, apparently in the 1970s, altar boys used to throw it at each other. and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so or they used to put it under their gowns and like try to tickle each other with it. So like it's had such a <laughs> a diverse history and I, I think it would be really interesting to open up more dialogue about it because at the moment it's not really known. Yeah. Um I suppose we're both from Belfast, so mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew about it before. <laughs> no, I, I didn't actually though this whenever you sent me on the paper it was actually the first time I had read about it and no doubt I've probably walked past it many mm-hmm. many times in, in the museum and you and you wouldn't even know it's there and like it's not maybe necessarily the museum's fault it's just that you know there wasn't any signage or you know you're, you're not told about it maybe I'm not too sure because there there's maybe bigger and better um exhibitions have got on at, at the time you know because the last time I was in at the museum, they had the um, Leonardo sketches. Yes, yes, that was class. You know, I was uh, really, really, I really enjoyed that. But obviously, you know, this object, it was just wasn't because I've got so many objects in there, and it is a very good um, local um, uh, museum. Yeah, maybe they're, yeah, they're just maybe pointing people in, in a different direction these days. I'm not too sure. But um, if I can just move on yeah. a bit to. Uh, whatever you're saying obviously you can't touch that now but something you can touch is the um relic of saint anthony as well so yeah yeah um uh on tuesdays now obviously with covid and everything i don't know how services work and also touching and kissing something at the moment probably isn't the best thing to do um but yes on tuesdays in normal times uh, the relic of St. Anthony is venerated within the same church, uh, St. Patrick's in Donegal Street, um, that the St. Patrick's relic is in. Um, so they have a reliquary um, of St. Anthony, and for some reason, St. Anthony is very much revered, um, especially for Irish mummies who lose stuff all the time. Um so he's got a, a big following in North Belfast anyway. And every Tuesday he is venerated. Um, the mass sort of talks about it, or the priest talks about it during the mass. And then afterwards the congregation come and they might kiss the, the, the reliquary. They might put a photograph of somebody up to it or uh, objects like rosary beads. Um, because of this idea of sacred transference, so that would be... Um, an object that touches something holy that is charged with its holiness and then maybe the healing quality of that can be passed on to other people Um, it's it's, whenever I was watching it um, you know it's very emotive and um, it's a very sincere kind of worship Um, uh, so 
you know, it's still very present. And although maybe a lot of even practicing Catholics don't find, you know, they don't put any weight in relics. Um, some people obviously get a lot of um, comfort from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's something that it was interesting whenever, because um, obviously the museum take the reliquary, um, the shine of St. Patrick's hand to the Pro Grail House. And then after that, they don't know what happens in between. So when I showed the curator and um, conservator in the Austrian Museum, the pictures of it, they had no idea what they did with that, their object or, well, it's owned by the Catholic Church, but they had no idea what happened to the, the object in their care mm-hmm. during that time, which was quite interesting. Like, people don't know this still goes on or, like, it, it died in the medieval times, but it's still very much alive, still very much a part of worship too. Like, And then you also mentioned as well in your research and whenever you went down to visit um, the church that there were parishioners who brought their own objects and pressed them against the, the glass window of the relics as well, the kind of... The quality of, of the, the sacred healing power, it's to, to bring a part of that with them mm-hmm. um, and maybe give it to someone else. Um, I was reading reasons why people uh, visited uh, centuries of Le Jure, I think that's how you say it, um, when she came to Ireland, uh, reasons why people wanted to see her. And the main reasons were a family member was sick or injured. Um, so I would think that they would maybe be pressing a picture of that person um, trying to get the this the healing quality from the holy person or maybe it's someone who's passed away mm-hmm. um, and they have a connection with them you know yeah. here so yeah it's something quite genuine and emotive about it um, and I think even as someone who's a bit I don't know how to describe it but a bit agnostic but um, watching it like you can't help but feel something when you see this kind of veneration like I was just going to mention a bit more about your um post on the uh, Lord in the Attic as well? Yeah, so um, I'm just at the moment writing a chapter about uh, historic house museums or living history museums. Um, So that's mainly about places that uh, were religious and function before. So deconsecrated spaces um, and how people interact with objects there. And I kind of I compare that to purpose-built museums, um, and there's lots of differences there. So purpose-built museums were built um, sort of with the typography of uh, palaces and classical architecture, and this kind of domineering aesthetic. Um, and they were born out of this idea of civilizing people and. Uh, making people behave in a particular way. And obviously this is the time of uh, colonization and empire. Um, With the historic house museums that I look at, they are different because they were built to facilitate ritual. And religious ritual is something that... uh, it's not really seen in museums. It's not the way you're supposed to behave. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see how they transform into um, museum spaces. 
Um, and Our Lord in the Attic is it's a museum in Amsterdam. It's in the red light district. So it's, it's kind of strange when you're walking through there to get there. <laughs> um, and you're in this, it's the, it's actually the oldest, the most authentically intact, um, oldest house or canal house in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in the canal rings as well. So the whole UNESCO world heritage site. So it's this incredibly valuable historical site um and in the 17th century when amsterdam was or when the netherlands sorry um were massive were a massive empire um they forbid or outlawed the practice of catholicism in amsterdam and a german merchant uh, jan hartmann bought this house and he converted the attic into um, a church so that Catholic people could practice there in secret. Um, and today it functions as a museum about that story about Jan Hartmann. Um, and it functioned as a church till 1887, um, whenever Catholics could practice again. And the St. Nicholas Basilica in the centre of Amsterdam was built. And then they decided to keep it as a heritage site. Um, and it's really, it's a really, really good museum. It's a really enjoyable museum. Um, I think what makes it really kind of fun and exciting is that they really um, accentuate how historical the site is. So you arrive, you're in this really modern visitor centre. It explains the history of these secret churches. And then you put on these big plastic covers over your shoes um, and you have an audio guide in your ears and it's telling you you know don't touch this and you have to tread carefully um, don't touch the banister um, so you're, you have you adopt this kind of heritage behavior of something that's old mm-hmm. um, and it really brings home the fact that oh this is really fragile this is really precious um, um, and you're kind of taken in by all that you know it really um, exaggerates how historical the site is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in doing that, it it's definitely not like a, a sacredly religious place anymore. It's transformed into a sacredly historical place. Um, you know, all those things that come with the intangible ideas of something historical, that it's it needs to be preserved in perpetuity that you have to respect it and in some ways kind of venerate it like you would in a religious ritual. So there's some parallels there. And even though it functioned as a religious space, um, because this historical narrative is over pasted over all of that, it is much more of a historical space. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would recommend visiting it because it's really cool. <laughs> but um, <laughs> like on, on a personal level, do you prefer visiting, you know, a, a museum now? Because generally museums are either built in Victor, you know, Victorian times or, or late Victorian, or do you prefer those kind of living museums where you physically walk into say someone's house where they used to live? Yeah, I think personally. That depends. Like, it, hmm. yeah, like Arlo in the Attic is probably my favorite museum. And I think it because it embraces everything about making something feel historical. 
And it's really all about the visitor experience because I've read um, different interviews with curators and stuff and they say like we want particular floorboards to, to creak and we have put um, they're like rush mats on the floor of the, the church part to you know have that feeling under your feet of I, I think they use these rushes to um, do you know whenever they were practicing in the church that people couldn't hear around mm-hmm. but the material that they use for these mats attract moths and things so it's like the antithesis of what a museum wants they don't want uh, pests uh, into their spaces um, but they have chosen that because they want to enhance the visitor experience and it works very very well um, and saying that I like art museums and different things so I, yeah but I think for history I do like the the sensory experience of visiting something that's old and from my different visitor interviews so I was asking people questions on the spots in um in purpose-built museums and in historic house museums and the word authentic Mm -hmm. kept coming up in the historic house museums Mm -hmm. um so I feel like other people think it's more real Mm -hmm. than the purpose-built museums maybe yeah I like I find out myself whenever you go to like say the, the British Museum or the VNA, or even the Austrian Museum, they are fantastic places and they have some brilliant objects in them as well. But I find mm-hmm. myself, um, you have a bit of a disconnect sometimes because you know you're in this large grand space. There's there's you know plenty of people around you as well. And you kind of you kind of get lost because you're trying to like not bump into people, especially whenever I was in the Louvre many years ago looking at the Mona Lisa. I would say mm-hmm. the, <laughs> I would I would I would say the crowd was probably five or six people deep. I couldn't see anything. And if it was going to take a photo, it was going to be bad quality from about 10 meters away. And I just didn't really get that experience. While, like you were saying, I like to kind of go in and it has to be a lived experience. And I think that's why maybe the the National Trust houses do so well, um, because because you're physically there. You you can you can see the pictures on the wall. You can see who lived there. You can like you said as well, you can hear the creak of the floorboards. You can see the do- the doors opening their old handles. You, you know, it's the, yeah. the furniture there. You have it's the, it's, it's, the smells as well. It's not just mm-hmm. what you see. Yeah, um, but it's it's funny that people say that because these historic house museums are staged and reconstructed. They're not, you know, our Lord in the attic. Let's say a lot of their objects are were maybe used during the time that it functioned as a church. However, a lot of them have been acquired from the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam um, in order to construct this narrative of uh, this German merchant and he's working away and he wants to to worship in the church. Um, And then you also have to remember with these historic house museums um, that the curator chooses a narrative of an aspect that happened in history so you're not getting the full story of what happened in the house. And I think that's particularly evident with some of the latest uh, things going on, you know, with National Trust saying, OK, we're going to be more transparent about our links with slavery and different things. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas before you you don't you didn't get to see that you didn't under maybe. It wasn't um, evident that oh, these people are rich because of sugar plantations or. Mm-hmm that kind of thing so 
in a way, if you think too much about it, unfortunately, it's not that authentic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true as well. And I think it's it's so topical now as well to discuss where these houses came from because beforehand mm -hmm. it was you know they had this glamorous lifestyle they had this staff and you can go downstairs and see where the staff used to make their dinner and i think it's good as well now because instead of looking at the people who actually lived in the house it's who worked there what what were their lives like as well it's it's you know it's it's kind of history's kind of changed that way as well um yeah it's been more democratized as well which is more interesting i think yeah <laughs> So what would you say are your favorite museums then? Um, that's really tough. I would definitely, Arlo in the Attic is my favorite. Um, I really like Dutch museums. <laughs> um, the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam is one of my favorites. I think because they, maybe the uh, in Dutch society, they really embrace art and history and culture. And you can really see that. In their museums so i'd say they're top two mm -hmm. um i really like art galleries in belfast as well um like belfast exposed and catalyst arts and different things and mm -hmm. um, i work in the notting gallery at queens so obviously that's class um, <laughs> <laughs> shout out um <laughs> i love the national gallery of ireland um in dublin they have an amazing collection, and the National or the National Museum of Archaeology. They have St Patrick's Bell, definitely like. Um, and a part of my case studies, I've looked at St Mungo's Museum in Glasgow, which is a museum that displays objects from all different religions, um, and in order to um, open up a dialogue between those people and those communities. Um, and challenge the sectarianism in the city. So I think that's a really interesting approach. Yeah. <laughs> so so just, just before I finish off then, where do you see museums heading in the future then? Because when I know whenever I was younger as well, museums were very much, uh, it was, you know, like a, a closed area. You can't, you can't touch anything. You have to walk yeah. through, you have to walk through quietly. While nowadays it's completely different. It's, it's interactive. Their websites mm -hmm. are fantastic. Their social media is great um they've got a coffee shop they've got um a sh like a shop where you can buy different products from the different museums so it's they've, they've mm -hmm. very much they're very much all because there's so many things now which people can be attracted to in various cities so they need to kind of market That's themselves true. where do you see museums going in the next 5 10 15 years do you know what i think i would be saying something different maybe six months ago but um from the things that are happening now with tearing down statues and uh, people asking for uh, decolonialization of museums, I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to read about and to follow. Um, I like. I know Manchester Museum, for instance. I think last year, the year before, repatriated a lot of objects that had sacred relevance to uh, people and they were obviously colonial loot. And I think um, some museums are now addressing that and saying, look, we stole objects uh, in the 19th century, 18th century. Um, either we're going to um, interpret that and let people know and be transparent about how we acquired objects or we're going to repatriate them um, repatriation has its own complications like but um, and I know in um, 
like the Rijksmuseum, for example, in 2015, they went through a massive um, overhaul of what they labelled their um, their objects. So they had objects that maybe said, you know, we took these objects in a in a siege in Indonesia, and now they say this is colonial loot. We took this in a violent um, you know a violent uprising. So they're in some museums they're being more transparent um, and they're trying to be they are actively trying to be more inclusive and more diverse. Um, I would like to see maybe more diversity within like the curatorial uh, staff, you know more people um, from different backgrounds being employed. Um, uh, I think that's maybe the only way to go about it, but I think it's wrong to think that, all museums have the same policies and they all act the same. Um, there's going to be ones that drag their feet and there's going to be ones that are going to be proactive. Um, but it will be interesting to see. And I think uh, historians and museologists should definitely keep their ear to the ground because I think something unprecedented, unprecedented is going to happen, you know, just from things that are happening during lockdown. And it's quite exciting. To see as well this change part of my chapter on purpose-built museums um i discuss how the architecture exudes this kind of idea that they are the custodians of knowledge and they know best um and from looking at these religious objects and seeing that um curators are now accepting that these religious objects are not just their materiality. They have immaterial properties um, through different rituals, and that's being sort of illuminated now, which is really interesting to see. So it's this kind of interaction with more people is actually building more knowledge um, within collections. Um, so instead of being the know-it-all custodian of knowledge, they're realizing there's big gaps in what we don't know. Um, so that's interesting to see. But um, in terms of people, more people being attracted to visiting museums, um, I've noticed that whenever I talk to curators and different things, that they say they bring boxes of collections out to communities. And I think maybe the architecture might be putting people off actually going into these places. And maybe museums will have to not be a building. They're going to have to be about people rather than being mm -hmm. set in stone kind of thing. Perfect. That's brilliant. Um, so we'll finish, there, finish up there. Thanks very much, Emma. No worries. Thank you.